and welcome. You're listening to Canberra's People Powered Radio, 2XXFM 98.3. The program is subject to ACT with me, Sophie Singh, bringing you stories of community and current affairs from our local city and beyond. Stories with a global dimension. The impact of Australia's harsh policies of deterrence towards people who have tried to reach Australia by boat to seek safety and asylum have been wide-ranging. But one of the lesser-known consequences has been on people who, having fled persecution and danger in their homeland, have made their way to Indonesia, hoping to find resettlement in a third country. Before 2013, many of those people would have made their way to Australia as refugees. But since 2014, Australia has maintained a policy of excluding any refugee from resettlement in this country if they registered with the UNHCR in Indonesia after the beginning of July 2014. Over 14,000 refugees remain trapped in Indonesia, all facing an entirely uncertain future. There are many people in Australia working to find resettlement solutions for refugees stuck in Indonesia. And my guest today is about to embark on a marathon swim across Lake Burley Griffin in support of a young Hazara man from Afghanistan who has been living in Indonesia for the past seven years and to try and secure resettlement for him in Canada. Hanalei Bickley joins me to talk about her marathon swim and to shed some light on what life is like for refugees in Indonesia. Hanalei, welcome and thanks for speaking with me on Subject ACT. Thanks for having me, Sophie. Hanalei, what work were you doing with refugees and people seeking asylum in Indonesia? I spent about five or six months in Java in 2018. I was doing my social work student placement over there and I was involved with Jesuit Refugee Service. So I spent a lot of time over in Bogor in West Java and uh, worked alongside the JRS workers over there, supporting them and learning from them in their daily work within the refugee community there. What did that actually involve? So in terms of the work we were doing, it could be anything and everything. JRS sort of seek to accompany, support and advocate. We would support them as much as we could financially with food and rent and assist them with medical treatment, going to hospital. The accompaniment of refugees was the major thing that we would do each day because we were really hindered by the lack of laws and support around refugees. So there wasn't much we could do to change their bigger situation. But we liked to walk alongside uh, the people in the community there, listen to their stories, listen to whatever they needed to get off their chest that day. So that involved sort of working in the margins probably. Very much so. The Jesuit Refugee Service workers there were so inspiring. They lived in the office. Um, Their whole lives were centred around this work. Um, For me as an Australian social worker, it was quite confronting um, because we talk a lot about uh, self-care and separating our work from our personal life. Um, And it was a completely different situation over there. They offered um, for me to stay with them and I just knew for myself I needed to have a bit of separation just to um, keep doing the work yes, we were to doing. to protect yourself a exactly. little bit. 
And yeah. so the local JRS workers are refugees? They're not refugees. Right. Um, they're mainly Indonesian staff. Indonesia hasn't signed the Refugee Convention, so it has no uh, legal obligation to recognise refugees and to actually afford them any rights. So from what you saw and what you experienced, what is the day-to-day reality uh, for refugees? Yeah, of course. Uh, Refugees over there have no rights to work or study. Um, They're literally in limbo waiting. I think the best way to describe it is they have three different types of living situations. So one would be detention centres. There are about seven different detention centres around Indonesia, um, heavily funded by the Australian government. As well as detention centres, refugees were living in community supported housing, which is through the IOM, also funded by Australia. Refugees living in housing like that, it was in between what a detention centre and living independently in the community would look like, um, but it gave refugees um, who might not have family in other countries um, able to support them the ability to at least um, survive the day-to-day with food and rent. The third option, which was the community I was most involved with, was the community living. And those refugees have to be completely self-sufficient. So other than JRS, they were getting absolutely no support. And there's not much one organisation can do for a community of 2,000. Hanalei, because Indonesia isn't a signatory to the Refugee Convention, there is no prospect of citizenship uh, or any permanency in that country. What are the, the realistic prospects for refugees in Indonesia to find resettlement in a third country? At the moment, uh, not much. For a lot of the people I met, young, single, healthy people, Uh, their prospects of resettlement is even lower. Um, I think often it will go to families with um, sick young kids or further traumas on top of their refugee experience. For refugees in Indonesia, their main hope was uh, being resettled in Australia or Canada. Our government has a very small quota of refugees from around the world that it will resettle. Uh, Canada does have more numbers um, than Australia but even then when I arrived in I think about April 2018 in March a month earlier the UNHCR had to tell the community that the uh, amount of time they could be waiting in limbo had been increased from 10 to 25 years so in the space of that month um, we saw many suicides um, and people just losing all hope. They'd been waiting five years already and they thought, okay, at worst, we just have to do that again. For that to be increased to 25 uh, was really heartbreaking. And a couple of years later, 2020, that time they could be in limbo, waiting for resettlement was increased to an indefinite amount of time. Makes a bit of a mockery of the idea of a queue, doesn't it? Exactly. You're supporting a young man, Elijah. Tell us a little bit about Elijah. Sure. So two years before I went over with JRS, I was in Indonesia for six months um, at university over there studying Indonesian. I was living in Yogyakarta, which is a real student city in Java. 
and met Elijah through the international community and through mutual friends. He was just this amazing young man. We were the same age and he had fled Afghanistan when he was 19. Um, So he'd already been in limbo in Indonesia for two years. He'd been in a detention center for one of those years or two of those years and then he'd been moved into community housing in Jogjakarta. He has no work rights in Indonesia. That inability to work and occupy yourself must be part of the real trauma of being in that situation for year after year after year. So how does Elijah fill his time? Elijah, I think, is one of the most um, motivated positive thinkers I've ever met. Um, He's a very, very intelligent person. And over the five years that I've known him, his English has just become incredibly fluent. And he's a very well-spoken person who really enjoys learning and studying. Um, So he has found ways to keep himself going by Uh, doing free online courses. Um, He's a very social person. So he's he's made a community for himself in in a really hard situation and found ways, I think, to sort of work around these really harsh top-down rules. He would love to go to university. I think that's what really motivates him is seeing people like me and his other friends in Indonesia follow that trajectory of high school and travel and then university and a career. Um, I think that gives him a lot of hope for whenever that might happen. In terms of um, his story a little bit, he had finished high school in Afghanistan and Um, decided not to go straight to university. He was the oldest son of his family. So he wanted to go straight to work and support his family like that. And he got a really um, well-regarded job in his um, hometown in Afghanistan. He was working for an NGO um, that had funding from international organizations to support women in his area, learn skills such as IT and a lot of sort of women's empowerment programs. So that was sort of what started his situation of having to flee. He was accosted on his way home from work one day by the Taliban and was told, if you don't stop working for these foreigners, we will cut your head off. It's a pretty stark situation to be facing. So the very real reasons that people do flee and they do literally flee for their lives. Exactly, yeah. Hanala, you're about to embark on a marathon swim to support Elijah and the focus uh, for that support is to secure a resettlement for him in Canada. Can you just tell me a little bit um, about what's involved in in that Canadian resettlement uh, before I ask you to give me the details of this marathon swim? Sure. So Canada run a program that I wish Australia would run as well, um, where community members can resettle refugees. Um, So there's three steps to the process. One is raising about 19,000 Australian dollars to cover the costs of this program. Um, Two is finding five Canadian community members who will agree to support Elijah for his first year there um, in mainly employment, housing, healthcare. And then the third part is just a lot of forms to start that whole um, application process once we've raised that money and found those people. 
tell me about the swim. Uh, marathon swim sounds like a daunting thing to do. So tell me, what is it that you're actually going to be doing and when? So I'm definitely feeling rather daunted. <laughs> uh, it's in about five days. <laughs> yeah, so there's an annual swim um, which covers the length of Lake Valley Griffin. We start down near the zoo um, and we swim around Black Mountain Peninsula up under Commonwealth Bridge, across under Kings Avenue um, to the very end, which is 10 kilometres of the lake. I am a new Canberran, so it's quite exciting. Swimming in the lake is is quite a thing here, I hear. (laughs) No, I've had some very strange looks um, and lots of even more daunting stories about the things uh, Canberrans have found in the lake. So I'll try and put that out of my mind as I train. We start at 6.30 in the morning um, and I think it will take me probably close to four hours of nonstop swimming. My aim is just to finish it. Yeah, I've been fundraising for Elijah through this big crazy swim. So you're asking people to sponsor you. Tell me about what sort of sponsorship you're uh, encouraging encouraging any sort of sponsorship whether that's three dollars fifty from your coffee that day or if you can afford a little bit more everything will make a difference um and we're going step by step here um hopefully we'll get there and and be able to resettle elijah and hadley if people do want to know more about your marathon soon maybe they want to sponsor you how can they contact you The main fundraiser page is through the Chuffed organisation. So people can sponsor directly through that and they can also read a little bit more about Elijah's story on there. Um, That's also a good link to share with friends. It's a bit of a long one, but if you go to chuffed.org slash project slash freedom for Elijah, help a refugee resettle in Canada. You so should be quite long. <laughs> you can also just contact me on my email address, which is hanalei.bickley at me.com, which is H-A-N-A-L-E-I dot Bickley. Hanalei, good luck with the swim. Thank you very much for speaking with me. Thank you so much for your support on behalf of Elijah. Hanalei Bickley's swim to support Elijah is this Sunday the 28th of November. So jump onto her chuffed page to find out more. And heads up, Bickley is L-E-Y, not E-L-Y. Check it out. And that brings us to the end of Subject ACT. Stay listening to People Powered Radio, 2XXFM 98.3. Thanks for listening. I'm Sophie Singh and have a great rest of your week. (music) 